Welcome back to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and I'm your host for season three. For this season, we're using the relationship between Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight as a model for how the common good shows up in local, tangible, relational ways. My greatest need is you. This episode will pick up on the conversation from last week. It begins with Peter talking about the liturgy of the empire. The liturgy of the empire is cost, speed, convenience, yeah. automation. I would lump them under the believing in the idea of progress. People said, you think things are getting better. I see no evidence of that. I am taller. I am living longer. So I think you can go through and say knowledge economy, philanthropy, all are liturgies of this tradition of predictability, consistency, and control. The only measurement we have is gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. I was thinking this morning that when Katrina hit New Orleans, that was a huge boom to those economies. Most of the black houses are underwater, and that city say we have an enormous opportunity now to develop the kind of New Orleans that we've been waiting for. And so if you measure dollars spent, hurricanes are great boosts to this empire economy. My own thought is let them be. That's why I like the idea of departure instead of reform. You know, John, both of you have spent your life on the liturgy of the wilderness. Yeah. You know, and there'll be performance. What would neighbors do? What's interesting is you see it in a crisis. If you ever talk to people who work for electrical companies, they love big storms. <laughs> and the reason isn't that they get overtime. The reason is that in a crisis, man, we're all in it together. Yeah. I don't care if you're a vice president, I don't care what protocols say, what I should do, what I have to do. You're out there fixing wires and you have a sense of community connectedness that I never feel when I'm normally working. Mm. Yeah. I have a friend who's in Canada, an indigenous person of the Cree nation. He was telling me the whole sense of the mutuality of the tribe was slowly dissipating. He says, but there's one thing that's come along that pulls us together. Almost everybody in our tribe is a firefighter. And uh, if there's a fire, you get paid by our standards really well. So he said, if things are not going well economically, we set fires and then we all pull together to put them out. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, that really has enhanced our sense of um, mutual work together and tribal That's building. Yeah. We're very close to the social service system yes. and the manufacturing of needs. Yeah, right. yeah. Instead of being a neighbor, if I can prove that you don't have enough schooling, creates demand for my services. Yes. You know, if you took the word needs and deficiencies away, right. the whole industry would collapse. It's almost a billion dollars in Cincinnati, servicing needs. But we do have a great need uh, because I've been attacked for attacking needs all the time. And our great need, my greatest need is you. And everything that the needs meters are doing <laughs> is taking me away from you and putting me in their domain. The relationship world I have surrounded by professionals who do what we could do. I grew up on a party telephone line, yeah. and my dad was a pastor, and my mother used to listen in on the party line hours and hours. <laughs> she said, uh, I have to, or dad won't know where to go to be a pastor. <laughs> Another confession. Well, I think one of the critical things about preparing for the wilderness is at the base, I would say, don't go alone. 
the preparedness is that you have to start by saying, I'm going together. I'm going collectively. I'm yeah. going as a community. One of the reasons that a lot of internal people, reformers, who try to reform things, act as individuals. Our friend Tim Voigt, instead of treating or having programs for people with disabilities, he now says to the family, if you will join with two other families and do something to improve your neighborhood together, mm -hmm. we will then give you the money we used to spend on programs. Wow. Simple structure. Yep. He didn't change jobs. <laughs> he didn't start his own thing. He just slowly over time decided that they're going to shift their thinking about yeah. what constitutes healing. I think the departure, it's really departure in place. It's almost like a tread, treadmill. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> <so> <laughs> we're taking some aspects of the rat race, which means you're going to work hard and not get anywhere. And say, how do you as a pastor, big audience for you and for us, reimagine, reconstruct. Mike Mather is a great example. But he stopped all of his programs yep. and hired Diamond to walk around the neighborhood and ask people, what do you love to do? He wrote it all down. Now, he's been doing that for 10 years. years yeah. It's really got a real job, a real team. And the philanthropists are getting interested. The guy who runs their foundation and a friend of his, Diamond, came to Cincinnati to chat. And the foundation guy said, this is really interesting because even the people in the empire aren't unhappy with the empire so strange. You yep. talk to philanthropy, you talk to therapists, you talk to school teachers, principals, they're all frustrated. Yep. They just can't imagine that their efforts yep. at healing and teaching are the problem. Your, uh, your wonderful phrase last night when you were talking about uh, all these businessmen who would like to be in solidarity with you but can't, you said they have a constellation of deterrences. And once they tell you this, they're the sun surrounded by, right? Unions and executives and uh, stockholders and uh, people in the neighborhoods around their plants. And I mean, this, the whole thing is the reason they can't do anything and are powerless, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I want them to use their power to change what yeah. they do racially, right? See, but, see, what they're describing themselves as not having agency. Psalm 115 described gods who have no agency, and then the psalm said, if you worship gods like that, you become like that. You become without agency. Yeah. Can't walk, can't it's smell, not, can't. And I think it's true. I always, people say, oh, wouldn't you like to work with top management? <laughs> so I'm ambitious as anybody. And after a while I said, no, the advantage is you just have to make one sales call. So if you get the top to agree, you got yeah. your budget yeah. and you can do it. Yeah. They are the most helpless people I know. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people look up to them as if they have power. Yep. Why don't they communicate to us? And the reality is, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> My first CEO of First National Stores, and I walked down, the guy's name was Hilly Cohen, tie on and everything, yellow tie. I said, how you doing? He said, not great. And I said, what's the matter? He says, I can't get them to thicken the ketchup in the ketchup box. <laughs> <laughs> he said, at least you think they would take Heinz ketchup. <laughs> pour it into a private label bottle and stick it on my lunch table. But they're not even that smart. And I, I wasted my suit, I wasted my time. And I think that's seeing that allows everybody to, to increase their own sense of agency. The problem with working with the top is once they wake up, they quit. 
what they were doing had no meaning for them. So if you take people that you think ought to and do not have agency, yeah. what maneuvers would permit such folks to have agency? Exactly. I think our common good collective is designed to confront people with that question. I know what John would say. He would say, well, get them together doing <laughs> yeah. something useful. All you have to do, you don't need a training program. You don't need an agency <laughs> curriculum. Make eye contact. I know, but that's the question, is how does a neighborhood person act in a way? To be alive, I have to feel that I'm creating something together with you. I'm an agent because the three of us are together today. Walter, Peter, and John weave the themes of belonging, story, and agency throughout this episode. As the conversation shifts to agency, we'd like to use the well-known words of Mary Oliver to firmly ground us in our interconnection with one another and with all creatures. It's called Summer Days. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Now, back to Peter. All transformation, in my mind, is a shift in narrative. I'm not doing anything different. I don't need more skills. I'm not interested in a blueprint or a curriculum. I just have to see that the narrative I'm living in is one that I chose. It wasn't handed to me. My parents had nothing to do with the storyline that I chose. Mine was wandering Jew for years. Once it dawned on me that that was just a story and wasn't true, I think the switch is a shift in narrative. What we're trying to do, why are we doing this? Trying to give language to an alternative narrative. You gotta see the one you're in and name it first. Having this story is uh, the core culture too. The story is telling us who we are, who we've been, yeah. so that we know where we could go. So I think it builds uh, agency. Modernism though is excellent at producing amnesia. Yeah, right. To me, agency and freedom are one and the same thing. It means do I have the capacity to create my own future? And to live with the burden of that is unbearable. I got to have somebody to blame once in a while. James Hollis says the purpose of marriage is to have two people be disappointed in each other over a long period. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, since you mentioned language, the way I think about agency in uh, my study of the Bible is that agency is a capacity to be the subject of an active verb. And mm -hmm. then the question is, what active verbs does your story give you? It makes a difference if I can imagine that I am the subject of active verbs huh. like heal, forgive, feed. I can act that out because my community legitimates those verbs. I think, it just occurred to me, Pharaoh traffics in nouns. Name the properties and possessions mm -hmm. that you'd like to have 
the alternative traffics in verbs. So when you study Biblical Hebrew, you get the rest of the grammar in three days, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to get the verbs, because they're very complex and nuanced and so on. I think that's worth pondering. That's yeah. a great thought. Yeah. They're sometimes called powerful speech acts. Some acts of speaking are powerful and some aren't. Complaining, not. Having an opinion, like a noun, not powerful. I pronounce you man and wife, that's powerful. So much weight is carried by the verb pronounce. There may be verbs in the empire, but the verbs in the alternative narrative of the Bible are just incredible. So if you look at what the doxologies in uh, the Hebrew Bible do, is to name all the verbs of God. And then I think the maneuver is human beings are authorized to perform the verbs of God. This is what God does, and this is what those who are in God's image do, are permitted to do. What we're trying to do in this is to support that authorization. I ask people all the time, what's the crossroads you're at at this stage of your life? And they say, I need a different job. That's not going to take you. No, which are all of which we speak great freedom, yeah. great energy, great imagination, imagination, great courage. Yeah, and generosity. Such a contrast to the one who can't smell, can't see, can't hear, <laughs> yeah. can't care, yeah. can't feed, can't satisfy, can't uphold, yeah. can't do a shit. Yeah, agency less. I had a Nazarene pastor call me, I didn't know him, about four years ago. He was so angry about being a pastor, and my big maneuver was to tell him he didn't have to be one. He sold everything and uh, went to live in his in-law's garage, and he said his children had never been so happy. <laughs> they were satisfied. It's different than promising happiness. People say, I just want my children to be happy. Yeah. That's code for wanting them to live out my unfulfilled dreams. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> The agency is the real key to what moves people. We did that. Not that changed. That's why outcome measures miss the point often, because the important thing is, did this lead to our increased agency right. among us? Because we're building our capacity to be together and to be productive. Become agents of our own history. That's right and therefore history makers. One day I was talking to my mother, she was fairly old in this little town in Ohio, and I was telling her about this guy who told stories about a small town like she lived in, named Garrison Keeler. It's fallen on ill days. At that time, he had the, the story that he told. And so I showed her where to get it on the radio. And she began to listen. And I came back maybe two months later, and we were sitting down. And she said, oh, she says, you know that man, Garrison Keeler, you, you told me about him. I've listened to him over and over again. And and she said this week, and then she was telling me her way of telling the story he told. But the funny thing is, it was like she was reporting as a newspaper report. And all of a sudden, I realized that she thought it was real. And I said, do you think those are true stories, Mom? And she said to me, of course they are. I've lived in a small town all my life. I know a true story yeah. when I hear one. And who's to say? I think that to, to entertain a narrative of an alternative requires the suspension of disbelief. The Empire wants us not to believe anything is imaginable out there, and we have to suspend this cynical disbelief 
of the empire, which is which is what the church is always asking people to do. And I think all stories are fiction. I really do. <laughs> Even the ones that are factual, all stories are, are true. <laughs> are in that sense true. You're in, in that <laughs> sense. No, I don't know. What, I don't know what true is. I don't know what true is. And you're great about the Bible that way. You don't get caught up in. <laughs> Where did it happen? It's all a suspension of disbelief. There's an enormous liberation. Now, my stories, even though they're fiction, are useful to me. Because yep. I need them to settle yes, down yes. and make meaning out of the crises in my life. Yeah. It's not what happens to you. It's the meaning that you give to it. People were, are hurt, wounded. But then what conclusions do you draw about that? And that's my agency. And if once mm -hmm. I realized that my conclusions were drawn by me, it gives me enormous space yeah. to change that. Yeah. And I think that's the authorization that you yeah. talked about. Paul Ricoeur, the big French philosopher, has the phrase second naivete. The first naivete is gullible. So you accept it's not true, but then you have to move beyond that to a second naivete, which says, I know that's not true, but what truth there is there? It used to be a big shock to seminarians to learn that mm. Moses didn't write it. Yes. Second naivete, it is Moses' revelation, revelation. to us <laughs> yeah. about the character of God. Yeah. I've heard, and I got this from Warner Earhart, that even though we don't know if it's true, it can still be useful. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so I don't have to argue about whether it's true. Yeah. Right. And the question for the narrative, what we're trying to do with this alternative narrative, Yep is say, look, at here's a narrative we're all living in in a hundred ways. Yep. Is it still useful? To me, it's not working. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the work of Walter, Peter, and John, as well as the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and produced by Joey Taylor, with music from Jeff Gorman. See you next week for episode four. And any lovebirds out there considering taking the plunge, remember Peter's advice. The purpose of marriage is to have two people be disappointed in each other over a long period of time. <laughs>